Well, first of all, happy Father's Day. I know for me, one of the most exciting parts of Father's Day is just getting up, and uh, it's Sunday usually, so I get to go get Lucy out of bed and change her diaper and just hang out with her, and yesterday we had a father-daughter day, which I don't get a whole lot of days where it's not all three of us, it's just always all three of us, and I was like, hey, can I take Lucy, just me and her today, and Kelly's like, you're her dad, I don't care, whatever you want to do, because she was doing a wedding shower, so it was probably better for her to not have to wrestle Lucy and... And I found out how hard it is, really, to do one-on-one with a kid. <laughs> you know, I would, I, I'm praying for people that have tons of kids because I'm like, I don't know how they do it, you know. <laughs> but uh, God's really blessed us, and, uh, and I hope that you guys are able to, to celebrate Father's Day one, one way or another. Okay, so here we are in Romans chapter 11. And as we looked at last week in Romans, I wanted to just do a, a quick recap because... The, problem, the, the thing we're talking about is the, the nation of Israel and God's relationship to them. The nation of Israel has had much light shed on them from God personally revealing his character, his attributes, uh, uh, protecting them practically and physically, uh, making them a nation of a group of people that were not a nation. God made them a nation from one man and one woman who were not even able to have children until they were close to a hundred. And so the, the very birth of the nation is a miracle. And then they go into captivity and they're brought out of Egypt through various miracles and the plagues on the Egyptians and they were in slavery and bondage. And the whole history of Israel is God's provision, God's ability to make something that is not into something that is. And his desire was to bless the nations through Israel. And in many ways he did, and in many ways the only hindrance to him blessing the world through them was them, and continues to be them. And so God's given them a specific place in his plan and purpose for the salvation of the world. And so in verse 3 of chapter 10 last week, we looked at how uh, it says there in verse 3 of chapter 10, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They as a nation, not all of them individually, but they corporately as a nation have not submitted to the righteousness of God because they've tried to provide righteousness for themselves. They've tried to be self-righteous on their own. And because, of they, because they did that, seeking to establish their own righteousness, when we do that as individuals, what we do is we don't submit to God's righteousness. We don't follow His ways. We come up with our own standard. And then in verse 9... He says, here's how salvation comes. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our own part is just to confess that he is who he says he is. To agree with him. That's what it means to confess. To say again what God has already said. And that by believing in him, in your heart, that God raised him from the dead. Well, what is... Jesus say about the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he says there, verse 10, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That it's our confession and agreement with him that saves us. There's not a whole lot of action in us saving ourselves. We're just agreeing with him, and that by faith we are saved. And so, because of that, God reveals his character through that and how he saves. It's by grace and not by works. 
So when, um, let's see. Well, we'll get there because that's in this, this week's chapter. But in verse 14 through 16, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now remember, he's talking about this they is Israel. Israel needs to hear the gospel as much as any other, what we would call a pagan nation that didn't have God revealed to them. And then he says in verse 15, How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And then he says in verse 17, and this is kind of the the crescendo in the chapter. He says, so then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. So many Christians believe in God. They have a relationship with God. They came to faith in God because they heard his word taught or preached in some way. They've trusted in God for their salvation because God gave them ears to hear. Over and over in scripture, Jesus in the gospel accounts, what does he say? He says to the crowds, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, how many human beings do you know that have ears? Well, I'd say all of them. Now, some of them have, you know, either birth defects or something that happened, maybe they had an accident, but we all have ears. And even the people that are deaf They have now ways to hear, not through the ear, but through sign language. Well, so is he saying that everyone who has ears hear or listen to me? Well, no, he's saying he who has ears to hear, listen. So there's something more than just a physical command here of, hey, just listen to me. Because if you've ever had kids or if you've ever been a kid, there are times where people speak things to you and you're hearing them, but you don't listen. You might hear a command, but you don't listen to it. You don't do it because you're not really listening. God's asking people, hey, don't just listen to the words I'm saying to you, but listen to the heart behind them. And so he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not just hearing, but leaning in to listen to the deeper truths he's trying to show us. Jesus over and over says this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And everyone has ears, but according to what Jesus was saying, not everyone who has ears can hear. And so that's how chapter 10 ended last week. Paul was speaking about the nation of Israel. God has revealed himself specifically to this one nation. He spent much time revealing his character, his plan for salvation, his desire to bless them as a nation if they would call upon his name, even after they'd been obedient. He said, If you, when you've sinned against me, will turn from your evil ways and you'll face me and you'll pray and say, Lord, have mercy on us, then I will hear and I will make my presence known to you as a nation. I will show mercy. I will forgive. That's what he told them. He pleaded with them. Does God have to plead with anybody? No, but he did. In his mercy, he said, hey, if you'll come to me by faith, I'll restore the years that the locusts have eaten. All the times that you were disobedient to me, I will make it right again. And he did that over and over again. But once they got to the spot where they were doing well spiritually again, they would get comfortable. They would relax. And in their comfort, in their relaxing, that's when they would sin the most because they you know, they'd just kind of rest, not in him, but then they'd start to go back to their old ways again. And so we need to take this as a warning that 
just like the nation of Israel that had a tendency to get comfortable in their relationship with God, we too can do that. And in doing that, we can start living for the flesh again and forgetting how we got to where we are positionally. And so in verse 21, he sums up the last chapter. He says, to Israel, verse 21, chapter 10, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. I've shared the good news with them. I sent my son through them. I've sent prophets to them to speak my heart and my words to them, and they disobeyed. They rejected me. And it even said in, in some of the Old Testament prophets, basically the Messiah came to his own and they received him not. They, they didn't recognize him. All they saw was this poor man born to them seemingly illegitimately. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but it looked like there was an illegitimate relationship because Joseph and Mary weren't married yet. And he was just a simple carpenter boy from, of all places, Nazareth, a place that was despised. The common word in that day was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, and, and we live in some small towns, and so a lot of people go, well, can anything good come out of, and you name the place. You know, the, the negative names that are for these little towns that we live around, so-and-so can't be saved. I remember what they did when they were growing up, or what they did two months ago. God can't change that. But the reality is, the, the truth of the gospel is that God can, can take anyone and make them righteous because of his works, not because of theirs. And so today we look in chapter 11, and the question that Paul asks is, because of Israel's rejection of the gospel and rejection of the person of Jesus Christ, who was in fact God, is God going to reject them? Is he done with them? Is he kicking them to the curb, spiritually speaking? And so Paul asks that question, and, and many people, it's a struggle for them because they go, well, if God's provided a way of salvation and they said no to it, that means God's done with them. He's, they've, they basically spit in his face, and they did. As he was walking to the cross, there were Jewish people there that, number one, had said, crucify him, putting the blood on their hands, and number two, they had also spit in his face, realistically. So in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Is he done with them? He's he sending them out the door like an adulterous woman. And there are many prophets in the Old Testament that refer to the nation of Israel as an adulterous woman. So someone who's been unfaithful to their husband. And God was a husband to them. He loved them. He provided for them. He protected them. He went before them in battle. He did all the things that a good husband or father would do. But the reality is, is they, they, they rejected it. They said, you know what? Poo on you. But Paul says, has God cast his people away? Certainly not. Well, anytime you make a statement that that's, that's that bold, you better have some evidence to back it up. And so Paul gives us two exhibits in today's passage, examples of the fact that God's not done with the nation of Israel. And I love this because Paul doesn't say, hey, I said it, I'm an apostle, you better just believe it. He says, I'm going to give you proof. I'm going to tell you why I believe what I believe. And so he says there in verse 1, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a blood relative of the nation of Israel. I was born from them. And, and 
God, verse 2, has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? So he gives two examples. He says, number one, me. If you want to see the fact that God's not done with Israel, I'm an example of that. I'm from the tribe of Israel, the specific, one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I love this because Paul, he identifies with them because that's where he came from. Many times Christians, they get saved, they get zealous, they say some harsh things to their family, they leave, and then they never associate with them again. But Paul never forgets where he came from. He never forgets where God pulled him out of. And he still has a love for those people because God first loved him. And so he says, I identify. I'm a child of the Israelites and God saved me. So that's an example that God's not done with Israel. And number two, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, that he knew ahead of time, his chosen people. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars and I alone am left. And they seek to kill me. They seek my life. But he says here, what, what does the divine response say to him? He's referring to a passage in 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, where this is something that Elijah had prayed to God. He said, hey, I'm the only one left in Israel who's actually serving you. Everyone else has gone astray. It was a very dark time. There were many ungodly rulers in charge, and they were literally threatening Elijah's life. But he says, what does the divine response say to him? Paul writes that. And then he quotes from 1 Kings 19 because God condescended to respond to Elijah. And God said this, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 are still in the nation, Elijah, and you're not alone. So let's turn to that passage because I think sometimes we skip over these references because Paul kind of skips over them. He just kind of haphazardly mentions them and moves on. He makes his case and goes. But to us who don't have a, probably a rich history of just Old Testament knowledge like they did, let's go there and, and take a gander. 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to start with the story that actually happens in uh, in 18, because there is a very famous story of Elijah meeting up with 450 prophets of Baal. It was the Super Bowl of spirituality at the time. They show up to this altar, and basically Elijah is contending with the prophets of Baal, trying to let them know, hey, you're serving a false god, you're leading people astray, so let's let's get to the nuts and bolts of this thing. Let's see who actually is God and who is powerful enough to accept our sacrifices. You guys spend all your time serving this God by the name of Baal. You're leading others to follow him, but there's, to me, no evidence of the reality of Baal. He's not a real God, and I'm going to prove it to you. So he says, if Baal is God, then we'll serve him. And if God is God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the Israelites, then let's serve him. But let's see the difference. And so he's not afraid to call on the name of the Lord to show himself as the real one and true living God. And so he, he says, I'm going to call you to the carpet. We need to have this showdown. Uh, we're both going to make a sacrifice. You can pick which bowl. We got two bowls here. 
We're going to sacrifice him, put him on the altar. You call on your God, and, and if he accepts the offering and burns it by fire, then he's God. But after your God does not do that, I'm going to put a sacrifice, and if he accepts the offering, then my God's God. And so they do that. The, uh, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, they sacrifice the bull, they put it on the altar, they prepare it, they do whatever they do as part of their religion, and then they cry out to their God. And they make a big, huge uh, mess of it. They're crying out. They're Actually, when he doesn't answer, they're cutting themselves to make him realize that they really need him to do what he does. And when they cry out, and they cry out, and they cry out, basically Paul stops him and he says, well, you know, maybe he's busy, or maybe he's attending to his need. He's using the restroom. He can't hear you. Maybe he's taking a nap, and he's kind of... He's kind of mocking him. You know, hey, what's wrong with your God? What's his deal? How come he can't accept your offering? I thought he was real. And so after that's all said and done, they clean off the altar. Paul provides his sacrifice, only one of him, 450 of them. He cuts his bowl up. He sets it on the altar. He offers all the right parts. He takes a grain offering, puts it in the trough all the way around. And then he does something that makes no sense. He has them go down to the water, which was quite a hike from the place that they were making this sacrifice. And he gets them to take this big old carrying vessel down to the water. And they bring up a bunch of water and they pour it on the offering. They quench it with water. Now, if you're calling on your God to burn up an offering, you don't put water on something you want to burn. You don't get a fire ready and go, hey, I'm going to pour a bunch of water. Now it'll burn better. Right? We get out the, the what do you call it, the... Fire water. You know, we get charcoal, we get some sort of liquid that's flammable, we put it on, and we go, hey, now we're going to have a fire. But he didn't do that. He, he said, I want you to pour water on there. And then he sent him, and then he said, okay, now go do it again. And they waited. And they said, okay, now you go do it again. And so then he didn't pray a super long prayer that we would think that a, a pastor or a, a minister of the gospel would do. He stopped and he said, Lord, I want you to sacrifice. I want you to accept our offering, not because of us, but because we want you to reveal your glory to these men. We want them to see the distinction between a true and living God and a false God who leads us astray. We want to show, show the difference between the power of the gods of the air and this world and the power of the one true and living God. And when he got done praying, God sent down fire, completely consumed the offering, licked up all around the altar, all the... The, the seed offering, and all the water was completely consumed by this fire. And we know this because our God is a consuming fire. And the reality was, is that on that day, there was a huge victory because the prophets recognized that they were serving a false god. So then, Elijah takes those prophets to the woodshed, basically, and he puts them all to death. Because in Israel, if there was a prophet, a false prophet, the, the law said you need to put them to death. Put away the sin and the evil and the wickedness from the nation. He judged them. And so after he killed all those prophets, there was a woman who was married to the king at the time by the name of Jezebel. Now, even today, this name rings a chord with us. I don't know too many people that are like, hey, I'm going to name my daughter Jezebel. Because Jezebel is, is a name that just rings true with adultery, with treachery, with bitterness, uh, nothing good comes up in your mind, hopefully, when you think of the name Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel is even mentioned in the book of Revelation, I believe, 
maybe that's not the case. Jezebel. Uh, anyway, so, but the reality is, is Jezebel is infuriated because she worships Baal. And so she says in verse 1 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings, it says, Ahab, who was the king at the time, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. He put them to death. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She said, You kill my prophets, I'm going to kill you. And so Elijah, like any man of God would, he said, No, you're not. No. What did he do? You think a man of God that's seen this great victory, boasted in the Lord, he would stand firm, but Elijah's just like you and I. He has victories, he has defeats. And it says here that after he read this message, verse 3, he saw that he rose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He, he fled the country. He left the nation of Israel. At the time, it was a divided kingdom. Israel's in the north. Judah's in the south. And so he fled from the basically the place where they were in power. He fled to a place where he thought they couldn't get to them. And when he fled, he went a day's journey, verse 4, into the wilderness and came and sat down with, under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. He was so scared that he's like, Lord, just take me away from all this. I fought hard, but I'm done. I'm at the end of myself. And sometimes this happens. The life of faith is actually sometimes, most of the time, harder than just going along with the mainstream. And we want to give up after God's done lots of victory because we're like, hey, I, I ran my race, I did all I could, now let me go home. And the Lord is going to come to him and say, it's not about what you can do. Now that you're at the end of yourself, I'm going to do more. I'm going to show myself faithful in you. And so it says, as he lay, verse 5, and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Now, he's just been running. He doesn't have any food. But it says there in verse 6, he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals, and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back and set a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose, he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So he gets all this blessing from God, the Lord feeds him, and then he runs for 40 days and 40 nights and he just wants out of that place. But he runs to a safe place. He runs to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave. He spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Why have you run? Where are you going to? Who are you running from? We can run from our enemies, but we can't run from God. God's, God wasn't done with him. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant or your promise. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. I'm the only one left serving you, Lord. Woe is me. Just take my life. I don't want them to kill me. I'm done. And then the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by him, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains. Now, first of all, I want to show you that sometimes we think that God only reveals himself to those who are always faithful. 
But Elijah's here in a place of unfaithfulness. He's run away. He hasn't sinned against the Lord, but he's definitely run away from his calling. And says that's when the Lord revealed himself over and over. He's hounding him down. Elijah, what are you doing? Where are you going? I'm not done. I want to use you. And I love this because he says, it says here that God revealed himself. Behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind, tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in that wind. That was just something the Lord caused. It wasn't God himself. Just something that God had done. And then he says, But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a mantle. And it was kind of like a a veil or a head covering. He recognized that this was the very presence of God, and so he covered himself in order to approach God. He knows that God's holy and that he's not, and he needs to approach God with reverence and humility. He went out, prepared to see the Lord, and stood in the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's the same thing he asked him before. What are you doing here? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. He's reiterating what he said earlier. Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets of the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, and then he gives them a list. These are all things that I want you to do through like verse 17. And then in verse 18, he says, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. But before I skip over verse 15 through 17, I'm going to read it. And more than the names, because I know sometimes it's it's disconnected from the context of the passage. We may not remember exactly the story and all the people involved. But what I want to point out is that God says, I'm going to be with you. I've still got things for you to do. And in the very end, he says, It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. See, in that verse, we see that God is already showing Elijah, I'm not done with you. I want there to be another godly generation. You're a prophet to me, but your prophecy and your ministry doesn't stop with you, Elijah. I've got people that are going to serve after you. And they're going to do it because you're going to pass on the mantle. You're going to pass on this this ministry of humility. This mantle, that mantle he put on, he's actually going to hand over to Elisha, a young man that he's not met yet, that he's actually going to pass on his ministry to him. See, I think a lot of the time we forget that God isn't just wanting to affect our lives. He's wanting to affect all of those that we affect. And the thing that we do for the Lord, if we don't do it, nobody will, but after us, we're going to die. We have to have somebody to hand it off to. And if we just say, Lord, I'm done. Put me down here. I want to be with you. And we don't pass that on to somebody else, then it really does end. But God's ministry ends with him. And he says, I'm not done with you, but I'm also going to pass this on to someone else. But the point of this passage and this reference that Paul is making is that every time, even in the darkest points of Israel's history, which this was one of them, Ahab was one of the most ungodly kings. The reality is is that God still has his remnant. 
He still has a group of people that he's chosen and revealed himself to that are continuing to serve him even if we don't see them. Sometimes I feel like, you know, there's only a few people actually following the Lord according to God's standard. But what God keeps telling me through passages like these is that you're not the only one. Keep going. Keep going when you can't see anything else going on. I still am not done yet because if I was, I'd be back. And I would have taken you to be with me. Until I return, keep going. And so, that's the reference to Elijah. So, I know that he's not done, Paul says, with the nation of Israel. Number one, because of me. And number two, because all throughout Israel's history, there's been a godly generation. Even before Jesus came, there were people who came to be my faith, that had a relationship with me by grace, and they were serving me. And they were passing on this godly standard to the next generation. And so those are the two exhibits, exhibit A and exhibit B. And even so, according to verse 5 here, it says, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant, a group of people that's still around according to the election of grace. He says there in verse 6, And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer of grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So God's revealing through this passage that number one, God's not done yet, but number two, there are actually Jewish believers, Israelites, who are no longer trying to fulfill the law, but they believe in Jesus. They call them Messianic Jews. And there's a remnant of godly Jews, just like Paul was, who are serving the Lord out of the grace that God has shown them, not of works. And he makes a statement that I think is very applicable to us and to those that we witness to in verse 5, or verse 6, but if our salvation is by grace, then it's not of works. And we know that. We've said that over and over as we study Romans, Acts, and as we've studied the book of Mark. But we need to remember that. That almost needs to be like a mantra to us. Our salvation is of grace. It's not of works. We cannot add to it. But there are those of us that have met people that have said, well, I'm a good boy and I've done good things and so God will accept me on that that scale. But we need to tell them, well, if that's the case, then you can't come through Jesus. Because if you're going on your works, then you can't go on grace. Grace is a free gift. If you work for grace then it's not grace anymore. You've earned it. It's your wages. It's what you deserve. And so there are those two differing but also exclusive things. Grace and works are not to coexist. They can't. And so we need to tell people that. If you're trusting in your works, if you're trusting in doing good deeds, then you don't have any part in Jesus because Jesus' salvation is a free gift from God that we cannot deserve or earn. And so... We need to know this because there are cults, there are groups. Uh, For instance, the Mormons. If you ask them the question, and I've heard people that have talked to the Mormons, they go door to door, not just because they want to share what they believe is the gospel, but also because by going door to door, they're earning themselves a way to heaven. It's a ladder for them. The more they do that, the more they deserve heaven. But if you ask a Mormon this, If you ask them, is your salvation based on grace, a gift from God, or is it based on works, they will say yes. 
Both. It's based on both. And in that moment, say somebody comes to your door and you ask them that question, go to Romans chapter 11, verse 6, because Paul lays it out clearly. It can't be both. It cannot be both. Verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Remember, we talked about that in the beginning of chapter 10, where he says they've sought out righteousness on their own because they rejected God's righteousness. But they haven't obtained it. But the elect, those God's chosen, have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So there's a group of faithful, and there's a group that's blinded. Now, I'm like, wait a minute. How can God call that against them if he's the one who's blinded them? And in God's plan, he's blinded them for a time. That's what we're going to read here so that the Gentiles could receive the gospel. Just as it is written, verse 8, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. He's made them blind, he's made them deaf for a time, to this very day. And David even writes in Psalm 69, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. So God has blinded them. He's made even their, the law that they claim to live by to be a trap for them. It says, let their table become a snare. What they eat. And they eat the word. They, they eat the word like you and I do. Uh, we, we feast on it. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. But they feast on the Old Testament so much that they forget they don't see in the prophecy that it's not just about man's works, but it's about what God's promised. I'm going to send you a Savior. I'm going to send you a Messiah. He's going to deliver you. And the reality is, is that they thought they would be delivered by doing this, this, and this. But the deliverer, though the law gave them a way to be forgiven of sins, it didn't deal with their desire to sin, their nature that always wanted to sin. See, God's not just offered us a way of salvation from the very consequences or the act of sin, but he also said, I'm going, to get, I'm going to put in you a new heart. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who's going to change your desires to be godly desires instead of fleshly desires. That you'll not no longer sin, but you'll be less likely to sin because God's going to give you the ability to overcome the temptation to sin. Because the law, although it gave you a way to be forgiven of sin, it could never change the heart. It could never deliver the person from sinful desires and temptations. And so, he says there in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, and here's the purpose for God allowing them or at least blinding them, certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So Paul's desire is that they would be saved, that they would receive the gospel. But for a time, the ones that are blinded, what God is doing is he's offering salvation to the Gentiles so that he could be saved. Because his desire for salvation, his plan for salvation, wasn't just for the Jews. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And we see this in the ministry of Jesus he would share the gospel. He would say, I have come to fulfill all that the Old Testament prophecies were pointing to. And they would laugh him off. They would mock him. They would say, blasphemy. That's blasphemy for a man to call himself God and to proclaim himself God. And so they rejected him, but he continued to preach. 
But there are a few occasions where he actually said, okay, fine, you reject me, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He did it very quietly because he didn't want to cause there to be tons of riots. But then you see Paul, his predecessor, who comes along, not as God, but as a preacher of the gospel. And then we see in Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Well, if you were with us in any of the weeks during the the study of the book of Acts, everywhere that Paul went, he would go to these places, he would preach first in the synagogue, and many would believe and many would reject it, and after he left there, or was shoved out, or was stoned, he would go to the Gentiles. He said, fine, I told you, you're responsible now for what you've heard, and then he would go to the Gentiles and proclaim the same message. And so this is God's plan, this is God's way. You reject me, no problem. It'll end up being a blessing to the world. And so, in verse 11, does their rejection of Jesus mean that God will forsake his plan for the nation of Israel? Does that mean he's done with them? No, he is gracious. Their rejection actually ends up fulfilling his purposes to reach all the other nations with the gospel. I don't know how God uses our sinfulness and our wrath and our junk to bless others, but he does it over and over and over. Our purposes, our own failings, our own rejection and rebellion against him cannot stop the purposes of God. There's a song, uh, Ke- Kelly and Lucy are always watching these, these movies called, uh, uh, Bible, they're Bible DVDs, but they're called, uh, I'm forgetting, huh? What's in the Bible? They're from the makers of Veggie Tales. And there's this song that I can't get out of my head And he says, you can't stop a train by standing in the tracks. And you can't stop an avalanche by yelling, hey, turn back. But getting in the way of what God's going to do will be really, 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 really not so good for you. But it can be good for others. And so the reality is, when people blaspheme, when people go into a church and start shooting people, like we've seen in the last week, God can use the wrath of man to praise him. And that blows me away because, and we even saw that this week, is this man went in, sat in during a prayer meeting and a Bible study, and they loved on this young man. And he had so much hate in his heart for these black people in this church that he shot them after being in there for an hour. You just never know who's coming in the doors. But then there was a man who was affected directly by this, And he wrote on his Facebook wall the plan of salvation. He said, what you have done is horrendous, but God can forgive you. And I forgive you. And I love you. And Jesus can save you just as well. And there's no greater displaying of the gospel than that. How did God demonstrate his love towards us? Romans 5, 8. In that while we were yet sinning against him, Christ died for us. And I... I love that because no one in the world loves like that. And the nation of Israel is not outside of his love. God is not done with them. There are many who will be saved by him. And we'll finish next week in chapter 11. We'll look at how God has grafted us in graciously that we don't deserve to be a part of his plan of salvation. He's allowed us in. And if we boast and we look at the Jews as if, hey, what's your problem? 
then we're missing the point because God's blessed us through them. We need to pray for the salvation of Israel. We need to pray that God would deliver them, that he would open up their eyes to the same gospel that we've received because to, to be that close and to miss it is going to be the most horrendous thing. And so their unbelief ends up being our blessing. And so let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a wise God that your purposes are beyond our finding out. I thank you that even in our rejection of you, I think back to the, the times in my life where I rejected you, that you were still using my life uh, to show others that they needed you. And so, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't need, <laughs> Lord, that we would fall on your grace and that we would accept the fact that you love us even though we don't deserve it. We'd have a righteous view of who you are and who we really are without you. But I also pray that our lives would not be those that reject you and rebel against you. Give us ears to hear. Continue to mature us in our trust in you. Help us not to be a stumbling block to those who are, who are to come to faith. Lord, in our rejection of you in the practical everyday lives that we have, Lord, we can oftentimes push people away from you. So Lord, I pray that your grace would cover our lives, that we would fall in love with you and, and just... Be in awe of all that you've done despite our undeserving of it. That we would pray for the salvation of Jews and Israelites, Lord. That we'd be a blessing to those around us. And Father, ultimately, that we, they would come to know the God that came to save them. And like it says in verse 12, if their fall, if their rejection of you, their failure is riches for us as Gentiles, how much more would their fullness be a blessing to the world? Lord, help us to be those who have such a, a deep relationship that it would pro provoke those unbelievers around us to jealousy. Uh, not so they would be jealous about our righteousness, but they would be jealous that God would condescend and have a relationship with us. Lord, save the souls of those who are around us that don't know you. Help us to live lives that reflect your love and your grace, just like this man who's commented on this young man's uh, Facebook page about how God can forgive him. The truth of the gospel is there's nothing that we can do that will keep you from loving us unless we just reject Jesus. Lord, open up that young man's heart. Help him to understand the, the forgiveness that he can receive. And Lord, help us to love people like that man did right now on his Facebook page. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.